Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin and how did they end? Let's find out on episode 54, Greek Colonization. Previously on Fan of History, the Greeks started spreading all over the Mediterranean. So Dan, what has been going on with you this week. Yeah, I've uh, started a new podcast. Uh, we have released two episodes of the sister podcast, this one, Fan of Astronomy, that I do together with Angelo. And we covered, we're sort of walking through the solar system. Uh, in the first episodes, we covered the Earth and the Sun, and we are about to go to Mercury. Uh, it's been modeled a bit after this podcast, so you will recognize the setup. 
Uh, yeah. And, uh, well, that's the big thing. Cool. So, uh, yeah. And, um, please remember that we do have a Patreon for this one. Patreon, fan of history. Patreon.com, uh, where you can... Uh, Sponsor us with a dollar an episode. We would be very happy. And if we get to 30, we will continue past 71 BC. Right. It's that, that's the important dollar mark for us. It yeah. not only shows us how much you care, but it actually get, provides us with the, you know, we love doing this, but there are costs to us involved. So yes, and now I have three other patrons going quite well. So I can't. This, this must work as well. This is my love child <laughs> or our love. Child. In this episode, we will talk about how the Greeks managed to colonize so efficiently. How did they do it? Who went, and why did they go? So, Dan, let's talk about Greek archaic colonization. Yeah, this will be a theme episode. Then we'll talk about uh, a subject that stretches out in time and not our normal chronological narrative. Uh, the archaic period of Greek history is traditionally 800 to 500 BC. But we're going to look at colonization in the 8th century BC mainly. But this is a model that will... Uh, remain. The Greeks will colonize this way. A lot of colonization actually happens in the 730s BC, which is why I put this episode here. Um, but it, it will peter out pretty quickly. So colonization later will not be as massive as it is in the 8th century BC. So now we will look at this process in detail. All right. So the first question you have to ask about the Greeks going out all over the Mediterranean is why? Why did they do this? Nobody had done it before except the Phoenicians, and the Phoenicians did it very, very differently from the Greeks. Uh, if you look at uh, Greece, it's still... Uh, uh, it's just it just came out of the dark age right and it's still very separated greek uh, greece uh, by its nature is like this mountain valleys high mountains low valleys and people live in a valley and they don't really know the guys living in the valley on the other side of the mountain so they form these city states which you all know by now and there had been an earlier period of colonization that was basically caused by the Dorian invasion during the Dark Age. The Ionians fled across the agency uh, to Turkey, to what is today Turkey. So the colonies that exist at the beginning of the 8th century BC, they are all in the Aegean Sea, pretty much. But if you look at a map from 800 BC and compared to a map from 500 BC, it's just doesn't look like the same people. Of course, 800 BC, the Greeks are all in Greece and the Aegean. Mm -hmm. And then in 500 BC, they are everywhere, like the plague. <laughs> so I, I want to go into great detail here about why this happened. And the first thing you have to think about is what's so special about the Greeks yeah. compared to everybody else. And I, I've touched on this before because... The Greeks are indeed special. I think 
it's not an exaggeration to say that all of Western civilization, its cradle is Greece. The, uh, I, why this happens in these mountain valleys, it's, it's hard to understand, but the culture is different from anywhere else. Uh, the philosophy is different. The Greeks allow themselves to think about new things in a way that no other culture has done before. The Mesopotamians, the Egyptians, the Chinese, they are all extremely conservative. They're like, they think time is cyclical. They want stuff to happen like it has happened before. They think about Sargon of Akkad, who was 1400 years before this, and think he is the ideal. But the Greeks, they like think ahead, they invent stuff, and they invent new ways of thinking. The Greeks are all also extremely competent at fighting. And we'll see that when they come up against anybody else except yeah, the Assyrians, because the Assyrians will constantly beat up the Greeks whenever they meet. Uh, the Greeks are also extremely good at seamanship. They are great at sailing, and they are probably second to the Phoenicians only. And this will, of course, explode in the 5th century BC when all the great thinkers appear and the comedies, the tragedies, Socrates, Plato, etc. But the seed is already here in the 8th century BC. Uh, there is a problem then for the 8th century BC because the Greeks, they know, now know how to read and write. We covered that. But uh, they are not really interested in recording history. That will only happen when Herodotus shows up and we're still pretty far away from Herodotus, the father of history. <laughs> so everything written down about the colonization process is written hundreds of years later. So there might be anachronisms in it that when they describe what happened in the 8th century BC, maybe they are just describing what's happening in the 6th or 5th century BC. But there has been excavations, like in the last 100 years, that have proven the dates and the process uh, to a surprising extent. So uh, scholars have actually been surprised that archaeologists, they dig up exactly what the Greeks told us we would find. So if they say a colony is founded in 735 BC, it seems that the colony was actually founded in 735 BC, which is pretty surprising. Right. That's when else have we seen that accurate of <laughs> historical detail? Yeah, and think about it. If you don't write down history, how how would you be able to describe things that happened in the Civil War, for example? And that's just 150 years. Right. We, so you have to rely on people like, just I was just thinking everything would have to be done in past tense, but with no reference. So, yeah, that would be extremely difficult. So the, the main cause itself is still heavily debated, and it has been heavily debated since the 5th century BC. So when the Greeks started writing all those things and started thinking about philosophy it, on a grand scale, they were already debating what, what happened in the 8th century BC. 
But there is something called the olive maximum in Greece in the 8th century BC. That's the conditions in Greece are perfect for their style of agriculture. So there is an enormous population growth in Greece. So there's shortage of land and they are forced out of their mountain valleys and have to go somewhere because the land can't support all these people. And it's such a stark contrast. It happens so quickly because in the 9th century BC, Greece was still underpopulated and suffering from the Dark Age. But this has changed now. This is massively. The change is enormous. So, uh, and we know that most people that went on colonization journeys, they went willingly. It was like, let's get out of here and find some new spot where I can actually have some land. <laughs> but we also know that there was conscription, that people were forced to colonize. And uh, the most clear evidence for that is in Thera's colonization of Cyrene. Uh, but it seems to be the uh, exception. And uh, our archaeology also confirms that an enormous population increase in Greece for the 8th century BC. Uh, we know that the Phoenicians, they colonize only for trade. <coughs> the Phoenicians are businessmen. And they don't care about conquest unless it's profitable. We'll see this in how <laughs> Carthage operates later, because Carthage is very much a company with shareholders and stuff. <laughs> but, That's pretty amazing. So the Greeks are also trading, but they are not trading to an extent. They are actually not as much traders as even the Assyrians. Remember, the Assyrians are also very, very interested in trade. The Greeks are too, but it seems to be a secondary concern. And this is already... This is also heavily debated, but it seems that very few colonies are founded only for trade purposes. And in the end, you have to look at every single colony, and there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of colonies. And you have to look at every single colony to see why this particular colony was founded. In the next episode, we will look at the most unique reason for founding a colony, we will look at Sparta's only colony. Because the Spartans, they are like, oh, we don't care about the sea. We don't want to go anywhere else. We want to stay here. But they still found the colony. And they have a very special reason for that. But that's for next episode. Because <laughs> next episode will also be all about Greeks. Uh, so we talked about uh, superior soldiering, superior seamanship then. But we also have this sort of political experiment. The, the, the isolated city-state sort of allows the Greeks to experiment with how they organize their cities. And this will become much clearer in later centuries, but still it's quite an efficient way of organizing a city-state. And this organization is a prerequisite for colonization, of course, because they get the colonization process down to a script. Also, this the, the concept of the city-state is very easy to move to a colony. So you can make the colony into its own city-state and model it on the mother city. The Greeks are, as we, we will see in their relations to the Romans as well, extremely good at uh, 
retaining their own culture. When the Greeks go somewhere, they influence other people to act like Greeks, but they, the Greeks don't change into something they don't want to be. They might take stuff from other cultures and adapt it, but they will remain very, very Greek. So, let's, uh, let's go through the process then. You and I, Brennan, we will found a colony. Sounds good to me. Let's find some land. Let's make it Danbrinia. <laughs> Danbrinia, okay. We are founding Danbrinia. We're currently living in city-state X in Greece. So, first there is a decision made. And that depends on the city-state and how they make decisions. But the decision is made. We have to found a colony. And this decision could, could be made by a private group or an individual as a private venture as well. So it doesn't have to be a decision by the city-state. But the city-state has to, like, uh, yeah, give its permission for this to happen, of course. It could also be a way of getting rid of people uh, that are undesirable in the city-state. So, like the way Australia was populated. <laughs> To send away the prisoners or political dissidents. But the most common way that we would do this is to make it a public venture of the mother city and an act of state. So we, the council of elders or the king or yeah, the, the people who decide stuff, they decide together that we are going to found a colony. And then you have to have an oikistes. The Oikistes is like the managing director of the colony process. The project colony is the project leader or the project manager. And then we have to decide what kind of uh, status and relationship we have to have regard uh, in concerning the mother city, the relationship between the colony and the mother city. But then you are going to be the founder, the Oikistes. So can we make your name a Greeker? Make my name Greeker? Yeah. Oh gosh. Breno, maybe. Breno. Brenotimus. Yeah. <laughs> Brenotimus, that sounds Latin. Yeah, I guess it does. Hmm. So we have usually one person being the Oikistes, and he has a lot of power uh, over this process. It's like it's his responsibility, it's his power, you have to obey this guy. So even in city-states where they don't have a clear ruler, uh, the Orchistus will rule the colony and the colonization process. Uh, it's often a noble or uh, someone exceptional, such as an Olympic champion. If you win the Olympic Games, you have a pretty good shot at becoming an Orchistus if you want to. And perhaps even if you don't want to. <laughs> But we are still in the 8th century BC, and we are very, very superstitious. So before we do anything else, we've made the decision. But before we can sort of put the decision into effect, we have to get religious approval. And, uh, yeah. Oh, I'll say that seems, seems very important at this point. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to go against any established religion right now. And in the classical period, this is uh, the, the religious approval is uh, almost only given by the Oracle of Delphi. 
And yeah, the Oracle Delphi master scam, they have managed to work themselves into every account. So when the Greeks tell about the colonization process, it's all the Oracle of Delphi. But maybe it wasn't the Oracle of Delphi, actually, in most cases in the 8th century BC. But we don't get to know that because the Oracle of Delphi is everywhere in the accounts of colonization. And it helps that Apollo is the, the patron deity of colonization. So we have to go to the oracle. And uh, yeah, you remember how the oracle operated. Oh, yeah. So uh, the colonists learned pretty quickly not to ask too general questions. So you, you have to ask something specific if you want to get any kind of use, useful answer. <laughs> so they, they've done a lot of prep work here. So the, the normal question is then, should I, or will I take this specific piece of land that I'm about to go to? So we already know the site and we're like, Mr. Oracle or Mrs. Oracle, should I go there and establish a colony? And the Oracle likes to be involved in everything and get all the money that people are paying. So the Oracle is generally very approving of colonization. And then if you have this decree from the Oracle that it's okay, you can colonize this spot, it also removes all the criminal guilt uh, that you might feel from taking somebody else's land because they're <laughs> often native peoples. In these spots. But of course the Greeks are interested in, in maritime sites. That sees, uh, sites by the uh, sea. Mm -hmm. And most native peoples are not seafarers. So they don't uh, evaluate land in the way that the Greeks do. So it's often possible to make an arrangement with the natives. And of course if a colonization process uh, fails the oracle will blame misinterpretation of the saying of the oracle as per usual. So, well, you, you didn't think, you, you misinterpreted this or our priest misinterpreted the oracle, but the oracle is never ever to blame. Oh, of course not. And this happened to the Fushians when they tried to establish a colony in Corsica. That didn't go very well. And of course, the oracle was blameless. So the next uh, decision we have to make is how many people do we bring? And here is where our evidence fails us. Hmm. So we have some numbers about how many people they brought, but we don't really know. Only We know only in general terms how many people lived in the city-states at this time. So we have some numbers here. They brought a thousand people to a place called Lucas. They brought 200 to Apollonia in Illyria and 200 people to Cyrene. And uh, if you look at archaeology, there is a glaring contrast between these fairly low numbers and the rapid growth of some of these colonies. For if you look at uh, some of the huge colonial cities that will appear, such as Pithecusa or Syracuse, they they can't have been founded by this small number of people. Or they had some sort of way of filling the colony once it was established. So there could have been later rivals from the mother city. Or it could even have been like 
advertising campaigns to other city states like hey you don't like the the, the tyrant here or the king here <laughs> come to our colony we need more people so then when we go to Danbrenia should we bring women well i'm going to say yes but what did the greeks say yeah you you'd think that you would have like an established relationship and yeah. bringing your own women seems to be a good way of ensuring the colony's future. Exactly. But it's not clear. It's not clear at all because the Greeks are such chauvinists. They, they don't care about their women. The Spartans care about their women, but the Spartans are not going anywhere. Right. So they don't tell us pretty much. They're like, ah, oh, women, whatever. Or, Let me tell you about this awesome thing we did instead. <laughs> and colonization was viewed very much as a male venture, but that was because everything was viewed as a male venture, right. except child-rearing or keeping uh, their home tidy. Um, it's very clear that the Greeks did not object to intermarriage with natives. Uh, we have archaeological evidence and literal evidence that they happily married natives. But if you look at archaeology, we also find that either these women turned Greek very quickly, mm -hmm. or there was actually Greek women living in the colonies, because in the early stages of the colonies, we have clear evidence of women doing stuff. And they seem to be doing stuff in very Greek ways. So I do believe... But this is my personal belief after reading through all this, that they did bring women. Maybe not all of the time, but at least some of the time. Right. Okay, so we have decided who should go. We have religious approval from the Oracle of Delphi. But now we have to be even more superstitious because we have to do everything in the right way so the gods are happy. So, of course, we have to pray, but uh, the, the gods, the ancient gods of Greeks, Greece, they don't care very much about prayers, so they care about sacrifices, because ancient religion is all about what you do and not about what you believe. So, let's make some sacrifices, and then we have to swear an oath, because we don't want people to chicken out when we get to Danbrenia. <laughs> right, what because what if the land sucks? <laughs> yeah, so so we swear together an oath that we will do this and uh, nobody is to chicken out. Everybody stays stay with the plan. And then, this you might recognize, we have to bring the fire of Hestia, the goddess of the hearth. So it means we have to light a fire and then we have to keep this fire alive and use it in uh, the new colony. And that, that sounds pretty hard on a boat. Right. I mean, you don't want to tip that brazier over. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I bet some colonists just burned up on the way. <laughs> right, exactly. But we have priestesses or priests uh, keeping that fire under control, I hope. So uh, we are probably safe. Let's go to sea. And I think then our destination is pre-picked, but there are some stories where they don't. They just know generally where they're going. 
And maybe you could like change the site when you actually get there. So your report was like wrong and there's a better <laughs> island over there. So let's take that instead. But the Oikistes is the one who decides. And I think he has the power to change the site when we get there. Of course, the sea voyage is uh, dangerous. And I think the reason to go... Of course, the Greeks know that the civilized parts of the world are to the east. And they are probably pretty hard to colonize. So most journeys go to the west. Especially to Italy and the islands. The sites are all very different. They, They can pick offshore islands. They can pick peninsulas. Uh, But they are all close to the sea. But you can see places where if they think the area is dangerous, they will pick a site on top of a hill on on land, but still so close to the sea that they could actually still get supplies and stuff. Right. There is actually only one thing that uh, is common for all sites uh, that they pick. For colonization, that's the access to fresh water, and that's a no-brainer. You probably just yeah. <laughs> without that you die. <laughs> yeah, so, so please, as the oikesters, please pick a site where we can get fresh water. Okay, we travel the sea. We get to our colonization site. We say, "This is Danbrenia. Let's pick this." You have ultimate authority as the Oikistes. You can make any decisions. You have a, this is, yeah, you really have supreme power in a way the Greeks don't normally have. But we, we know this is a dangerous project. We need a strong leader. So you get to name the city, but you already did that. You also get to plan the city, but you probably have some help for that. But if you look at the sites, Archaeologically, they are all very planned from the very start. And so there is a a clear town map that they build according to. And this is not all true for the Greek city-states themselves, because some of them are from the Dark Age. But the the colony sites are all very strictly planned from the start. Right. What else do you think we need for our colony? So we, we have a plan and a site. Well, we're definitely going to need a way to protect it from yeah, you let's, know, crazy let's people. Yeah, let's build a wall. Build a wall. Sounds good to me. There are no no sort of totally empty places in the Mediterranean. So there are native peoples everywhere. And maybe we don't know what they're like. So a wall is probably a good idea. We're not Sparta. We build walls. Sparta <laughs> still has no wall and will never have a wall. We're going to need places to live, so let's build some houses. And then, of course, we have to appease the gods. Because if the gods abandon this colony, we are in trouble. So we have to build temples. And then we need a place to put all the dead people from uh, the journey (laughs) and from the (laughs) colonization process. People just die all the time. So we need a cemetery. And for some reason, if there is a native cemetery nearby... We will often use that. So you can find sites where native burials, native burials, the Greeks arrive, Greek burials, Greek burials, and maybe also still native burials. And then we need to decide who gets what land. So we divide the land between the colonists. 
And this is all very Spartan because uh, these lots are almost always equal. So every male that went on this journey will get a land of equal size. That makes sense. And I think this was a huge attractor to go on a colonization journey. Because in the native, in the city-states in Greek, this is not always true. So maybe the poor people went. Like, like in the colonization of North America. Oh yeah, there was there was no land. You know, basically when when you were living in Europe, um, if you were born a uh, let's say a tanner to make leather, you would grow up to be a tanner, and that's what you would do until you died. You would probably live yes. in the same house that your grandparents lived in, and probably their grandparents lived in. There was no more room. But, you know, you have this allure of uh, of America where you can go and you don't have to be a tanner anymore. You can be a manly man and hunt and just live there and work off your debt. So, yeah, it was a huge attractor because, again, there was just no place left to go in Europe at the time. Yeah, but there's plenty of land in the Mediterranean at this time, so... Uh, we all get equal lots, except the Oikistes. He gets more land. But he has to get something for all his work. Right. We also make sure that the colony can grow, so we reserve some lots for later colonists within the walls then. So the plan extends far into the future, and we, we need to make room for that. And this establishment phase, it lasts pretty much until the Oikistes dies. Uh, there will be exceptions later, but in the archaic period where we are now, the Orchestus stays in the colony and rules the colony uh, until he dies. So th that's like, now we are established, Orchestus is dead. Uh, and after his death, he's worshipped in the colony as a hero, and usually you build a temple to him. Wow. And then after he's dead, so after you are gone, <laughs> and the colonist gets to decide how they are going to rule the city. And uh, they usually default to the way their mother city is ruled. That would make sense. Yeah, because they, they, that's a way that works for the mother city. They all know it, etc. So that's, that's the natural thing. But then things get complicated in the relationship with the mother city. Because most colonies begin as a cultural copy of the mother city. Mm -hmm. You get the cults, the calendar, the dialect, the script. Remember, Greek writing is not uniform all over Greece. You get the state offices, the citizen divisions will eventually creep into the colony from the mother city. You also have the graves of your ancestors are still in the mother city. You're not bringing your dead relatives on the trip. And this is a super strong link. So you know that your, your family's roots are in the mother city. But of course, from the moment you started this uh, colony, the, it starts to develop separately. And there will be tension towards the mother city. You often have a phenomenon actually where the colony keeps the traditions of the mother city even if they are changed in the mother city. 
Oh, wow. I guess, uh, yeah. I guess they wouldn't getting information, enough information back and forth to actually change culture would be difficult. And I think even if they do get the information, they're like, oh, that's a new thing. We don't like new things. <laughs> so, so let's let's do it like we always have. We have other concerns. Uh, it seems to be the case that uh, the mother city have very little formal power over the colony. Because the colony is its own city-state and we are not yet seeing alliances of city-states or like later in Greek history we will see like city-states forming almost nations but that is not happening right now so every city-state is its own city-state so it has the power to decide stuff and a successful colony could then outgrow the colonization site and decide to establish a new colony right so it's a it's a replicating scheme. <laughs> it's basically it's fractal colonies. Yes. So the colonies, like the Greeks, spread like an. If you look at astronomy, the way you expect an alien race to spread across the galaxy. <laughs> so the Greeks spread from their colonies as well, and very early on, the Greeks themselves start to debate then if the mother city has any formal power or not. Because some other cities will try to impose their power on their colony. And this will result in actual wars between colonies and mother cities. And one example is Corinth founding the colony of Caesarea. And Caesarea and Corinth fight a war uh, because of this attempt from Corinth to control its colony. <laughs> Athens has a special relationship to all its colonies because later on when Athens will become uh, really, really powerful, it will try to uh, sort of form an empire of its old colonies. And they're like, hey, that's not what we agreed on. <laughs> and of course, one way the mother city really influences the colonies is if they send more, even more colonists. They're like, hey, here's some more people. You need more people, right? <laughs> and these people come from the mother city, they are up to date with what the mother city is doing. And that will, of course, be a cultural difference, especially if there has been 200 years since the founding of the colony. Right. There's so, so much, that, so much would have changed. So then uh, there is a question then, if you, you, when you are the oikistes, then I, uh, we fall out and I feel like, oh wow, Brenner is really making a mess out of this. <laughs> I want to go back to the mother city. Can I? Ooh, that's a good question. I don't and know. You have ultimate authority, so... I guess if I don't like you... Yeah, you I could can, send me back. I could Absolutely. send you back. But you probably need every guy you can muster. Yeah, lots, as many strong backs as I can get are going to have to establish this city. Of course, I could sneak down to the harbor with my buddies, steal a boat, and try to go back to the mother city. Yeah, you could, but we also probably need that boat too. Yeah, and the mother city probably... They, they would like the boat, I'm sure, but they don't uh, want me. <laughs> they, were... they sent us away for a reason. Yes. You are clearly expendable. 
So it seems like the general idea is that a colonist uh, sort of could go back if he wanted to, but in some cases it's uh, forbidden. So when if you decided that you go back, you're probably better off just going to another city-state or another colony, preferably, because they need people. That's true. If you, if you don't like what's happening in your colony, the be your best shot is to go to another colony. And there are plenty of colonies popping up like yeah, everywhere. But then we have this other thing we need to concern ourselves with in Danbrenia. There are natives. Oh boy. And, what are we, we going to do with all these natives? Yeah, and the, the first question is what do they think about this? So we know that the sites were not very attractive to the natives, and having some Greeks nearby means that you can get stuff that you can, couldn't get otherwise. Because the Greeks are trading, and the Phoenicians are stopping at the Greek colonies. So suddenly you have a supply of stuff that you want coming from this colony. That's true. So it seems like the general attitude is fairly friendly from the natives. And that's because of this trade. And right. it seems that, well, those Greeks, they are like taking these useless sites and they're providing us with stuff. So that's not a threat. They're... Yeah, were you about to say? Oh, no, sorry. Continue, please. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, there is some evidence of fighting, of course. But the Greek colonists don't conquer large, large areas. They are still in this city-state mindset. So they want the city, state, the city itself and some farmland for the city. That's what they want. So they are not going to build empires and conquer the native peoples. So most relationships are friendly. We have some evidence that the natives are used as a labor force, uh, maybe willingly, that the Greeks hire them to do stuff. Or in some cases, they are captured and uh, taken as slaves which, of course, would influence the relationship to the natives. <laughs> in Italy, we have very clear evidence that the natives are heavily influenced by the Greeks. And that's, as I said, the, the superpower of the Greeks, that if you are close to Greeks, you will be impressed. It's like, wow, these guys are doing so much stuff. And one really big uh, influence here is on the Etruscans in the north of Italy. The Etruscans have this pretty civilized culture, but you can clearly see how it's influenced from the Greeks. And they pick up Greek stuff all the time. And they seem to really like the Greeks. So when the Etruscans finally influence Rome, you can see Rome getting their Greek influence from via the Etruscans and directly from the Greeks. So Greek influence on Rome starts very early. Can I tell you a quick story about Etruscans and my son? Oh, yeah, do. it's crazy. Okay, he had an assignment, and we had to learn about. Um, recently, there was Thanksgiving here in the U.S., and yeah. one of the traditions is the turkey wishbone. Is two people hold the wishbone on each side of the, and then break it, and who gets the big piece gets the. Uh, gets to make a wish or some say have 
good luck for the year. Just, you know, something positive. Yeah, I've seen that in movies. Yes, exactly. And the history of that actually goes back to the Etruscans. Oh, wow. So the Etruscans, I... even with that tradition, influence us today. Might be small, but still. Yeah, there, there were definitely some aspects of Etruscan culture that was Etruscan. Right. I just, thought, I, think, yeah. <laughs> I, was just saying, I just thought that was an interesting, you know, personal note <laughs> of culture and influence. Yeah, definitely. One, one thing that's very Etruscan that will appall the Greeks for centuries to come when the Romans try to impose this on the Greeks mm-hmm. is gladiatorial games. Mm. Which the Greeks will never really approve of. Um, so if, you, if the Greeks actually went east as well, we saw that the first colony was in Syria a hundred years ago, in 825 BC. But there is, of course, one place that the Greeks go to where they are the culturally inferior culture, that where they get influence instead, and that's Egypt. Egypt will be colonized by Greeks because the Greeks, it's the same reason that the Greeks like these sites that the Egyptians hate. They like the Delta, the Mediterranean coast. Mm-hmm. And that's not, only Libyans like that part of Egypt. <laughs> so, and Greek, the Greeks will feel that Egypt is their mother culture. The Greeks will report that all our stuff originally came from Egypt. Herodotus says that all the time, and uh, it's uh, there is no truth to that. But the Greeks are really impressed by Egyptian stuff, but they are not really that influenced by it. I wonder why they did that. That's it seems odd that they would. I mean, I guess they just want it to be true. Yeah, I think so. Huh. Perhaps they learned some mathematics and stuff, but it's it's quite minimal. The the real influence. Greek culture and Egyptian culture is they are very different. Oh yeah. You know, the, the Egyptians love everything that's old and very <laughs> change their habits way too late, whereas the Greeks will change everything if they need to. Hmm. And of course one important part of the natives is uh, women. So let's increase the population by uh, seducing the girls from the native peoples. Right. Well, these uh, fancy boys from the big city coming into the small <laughs> yes. town. <laughs> and that definitely worked. So uh, uh, eventually the sort of bloodline of the colony will become um, very mixed. But that doesn't change its culture because the Greek culture is not easily influenced by the natives. Right. And that's pretty much the way the colonies were set up. We will report in every episode almost some colonies that were established in that period. But I didn't want to like uh, give you a huge list of names here. <laughs> this is the way it happens. And then these Greek colonies will be around until the Roman Empire swallows them all. Eventually. Ah, that makes sense. But as I said, the Greeks get their revenge by making 
the Roman culture into Greek culture. So we <laughs> often talk about like the Romano-Greek culture. And that's because the Greeks influence everybody, including the Romans. And uh, I should remind you that we will not be talking about Rome. We are past 753 BC in this podcast. But we'll not be talking about Rome until 616 BC because everything from Rome at this time is just crazy legendary stuff. I think at about this time we have the Roman king marrying a wood sprite. And uh, yeah, we're not going to give you fairy tales. That's... So when Rome comes into our story, it will be as an Etruscan city, a city part of the Etruscan League, where the native Latins have just adopted to the superior Etruscan culture. And then an Etruscan king will mess it all up. Well, that seems to always happen. Yes. All right. Well, that looks like it for this week in our next episode we're going to talk about we're talk in depth about archaic greek war the first messenian war oh yes it will all be fighting in the next episode and they don't have the phalanx yet well we'll see how that turns out for them but please go to our youtube youtube slash is it YouTube slash fan of history, or do we just have to still search for fan of history? Uh, search for fan of history, yeah. that's the best way. Search for fan of history and find us on YouTube. Uh, subscribe, like, and share. Tell your friends about this podcast, too. Give us a review on iTunes or however you are listening to this, because it is shown that reviews actually drive search engines, so it helps oh, us yes, out they quite do. a bit. All right. Um, so I want to thank you for listening. If you want to support us, patreon.com slash fan of history. Also on Twitter, I am at Cerulean says hi. And Dan is at Dan Horning. Oh, yes. so, so for this week, I'm Brennan and I'm Dan. And this has been fan of history. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash fanofhistory. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.